Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, it's Reed. You normally hear me, but today I brought along Rick Wilson. Rick, tell the good listeners of the Lincoln Project podcast what we need them to do. Join the union.us. The union is a way for folks to be matched to campaigns and causes and candidates around this country to match your specific interests and skills where it can make an enormous difference. Go to jointheunion.us today. We really think it's using the power of matching people's ambitions and their talents with candidates in a way that really makes a difference. Get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Ron Insana, Senior Analyst and Commentator at CNBC and a Senior Advisor at Schroeder's North America. Ron has been a highly respected business journalist and money manager for over three decades, has written four books about Wall Street, and is a sought-after lecturer on domestic and global economics, financial markets, and economic policy issues. Today, he's coming to us from Inglewood, New Jersey. Ron, welcome to the show. Reed, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So today, Ron, I want to talk about what you think is on the horizon for the American economy, as well as the potential consequences for corporations waffling on where they stand on key issues related to our democracy. But first, I want to talk about the I word, and that's inflation. So let's get into it. So, Ron, based on polling and many news reports, inflation is the number one economic issue on the minds of voters and Americans, and how it plays out will be critical in November. Americans are experiencing the highest inflation rate increase since I was a little kid. I mean, Ron, I don't remember it. And is seeing the steepest increases in the cost of housing, meat, cars, and obviously we see gasoline all the time. Earlier this week, President Biden announced a three-part plan to fight inflation. We also saw Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen admit that she was wrong about what type of threat inflation would prove to be. So, Ron, can you first give us a primer on inflation? Because so many of us don't remember it with any real clarity, how we got here and how it plays out. So I lived through the great inflation of the 70s and the early 80s. Now, granted, I was 10 years old when we went off the gold standard in 1971. The dollar dropped precipitously, and that was the first in a series of dominoes that fell that ultimately led to the great inflation or stagflation that we talk about in the early 1980s, where the inflation rate itself was at 13% higher than today, unemployment was at 11%, and short-term interest rates were at 20%. So a very, very different environment that took 10 years to build. What's happened here in the wake of the pandemic the shutdown in China and the war in Ukraine is we've had massive disruptions in the supply of raw materials and finished goods. Those shortages have created higher prices, and we've seen disruptions in the labor markets because we're short people. Usually at the end of a typical business cycle, which by the way, we've not had for quite some time, but at the end of a typical business cycle, the economy is running very hot. Demand exceeds the ability of companies to provide goods and services, even when they're running at 100% of capacity. So that's very different than this environment where companies are running at less than 100% of maximum capacity, and yet demand has been returned to normal because of all the 
stimulus that we got, fiscal stimulus, interest rates at zero and the like. So people were able to go out and buy things, at least in the United States, after the pandemic abated to an extent. And so you had normalized demand against very much reduced supply. And that's the type of inflationary environment we're in, very much different from the 70s and early 80s. So customers are chasing goods and services. That they can't get. Right. So if you've tried to go out and buy a car, you know, and I, when I'm giving speeches, I say, you know, I was out talking to my dealer a couple of weeks ago and then I clarified that it was my car dealer. Well, it's harder to get a car than it is to get drugs <laughs> at this point. So. That's absolutely true. I mean, you have to wait six or eight months to get a car or we just actually bought a car for my youngest daughter who's in college. And it's still a two month wait for a fairly inexpensive car. So, you know, we have computer chip shortages, we have part shortages, we have labor shortages, and that is what's constraining the supply of cars. We have a shortage of homes in the United States. We're about 6 million units short of current demand. So housing prices have gone up and the Fed's tightened credit. So mortgage rates have gone up along with it. So has the fact that we have printed trillions of dollars, does that have anything to do with it? So look, <laughs> it depends who you speak with, right? So Larry Summers, uh, former Treasury Secretary, Jason Furman, economic advisor to President Obama, and while they don't often respond to me on Twitter, we do have a running argument going about the very nature of this inflation. And they're arguing that we spent too much on the fiscal side with respect to the various programs, the $1.9 trillion in particular that President Biden spent when he first got in office, and that the Fed kept interest rates too low for too long. I don't know that I fully believe that. Those two efforts restored demand to normal, right? They replaced all the lost income during the pandemic. And maybe we stimulated a little too much. But the real issue is you still can't get stuff and you still can't get people. So, you know, the Fed can raise rates till kingdom come, and that's not going to give us 5 million workers who are missing from the labor force. We're not going to get our cars faster. We're not going to get homes built faster. And supply and demand won't be in balance, except for the fact that the Fed is trying to drive down demand to meet constrained supply. And that's a very different situation than trying to even those two out at the peak of an economic cycle. Where are all the people? Well, so 3 million people retired early. Now, there's some indication that they've returned to the labor force. At one juncture during the pandemic, 2 million women left the labor force because of the pandemic and stayed home to take care of their kids. We think 1 million went back in. A million people tragically have died. Of those, 25% were under the age of 65. So like a war, when you lose part of your working age population and the war is over, you're suddenly short workers. And so we are short workers. And listen, we have insanely, and I know not everybody will agree with me on this, we have insanely constrained immigration policies that are keeping low, medium, and highly skilled workers out of the United States. This, to me, is the quickest way we could solve the worker shortage. And I know people will lose their minds, but open the borders. You know, I know the president's trying to roll back Title 42 and, and he's being blocked and doing it. We need people. We had a baby bus, the population in the United States last year grew at the slowest rate in the history of the United States. You know, I've seen those statements before, like you just made about a baby bust. Educate me as the ultimate amateur and neophyte. If there are less people and there are less jobs, then there are less people that A, need jobs and B, less people to feed, buy TVs and all the other stuff. So why is the baby bust such a big deal? Okay, so the baby bust right now is not such a big deal. It will be in the future, potentially. The real issue is there are fewer people, there are not fewer jobs. There are 11.4 million open jobs in the United States. It's down a little bit from the peak, and that was just reported recently. And there are only about 6.5 million unemployed individuals. 
So we have almost 5 million more available jobs than we have workers right now in the United States who can go to work. So that's a real problem. And on the immigration front, too, a lot of the jobs that I'd say first generation immigrants would come and do second, third, fourth, many generation Americans aren't going to do to begin with. Right. And that's always been the argument. Right. There's a guy that I've read, uh, Francis A. Walker, in the, then when it was called the Atlantic Monthly, who wrote this anti-immigration screed about how these dirty foreigners, Italians, Poles, Germans, Jews coming in from Europe below our station, coming in and driving down wages. There is not a shred of empirical data that immigrants drive down wages. What they do do is take the jobs that more assimilated individuals won't take and fill out the labor force, you know, first in lower skilled positions. And then as they assimilate, move into higher skilled positions as their kids obtain higher education and move on. Just as my family did, I'm second generation, you know, Italian American. We've all gone through this. And it's just, to me, it's one of the most mind boggling arguments. Again, it goes back to the 1840s with the Irish, right? And I can't repeat the line in Gangs of New York, but it describes how, you know, someone would do a job for a nickel that someone else would do for a quarter. It's just not true. And so we simply need more people. Are we going to be Japan? Japan is going into irreversible population decline. Demography is a big problem when it hits you like this. And the baby bus now is just because the millennials were delayed in forming families post-great financial crisis, and then the pandemic hit them with a double whammy. They couldn't get out of the house. Let me just veer off for a second there, because between the millennial generation and Gen Z, you know, of which I work with a number and it's, you know, the divide between us on some things is almost as dramatic as someone like me and like you, Ron, who grew up when there was a princess telephone on the wall at three stations on the television, <laughs> right? Yes. Like, yeah. So sometimes you have to sort of remind yourself that those days are gone. I am the proud owner, by the way, of three Gen Zs. So well, there you go. Yeah. I think, that, you know, God bless them. I think they may be our salvation. I think so, too. But talking to a lot of my friends who have driving age kids, they're delaying getting their driver's licenses. Why would I get a driver's license? There's always Uber. There's Lyft. A couple of the 20-somethings that work for us, I don't think have ever been really full-time in an office since they graduated from college or since they joined us. And talking to one of them just a couple of weeks ago said, I don't know how you'd convince any one of my generation to take a job where they had to be in an office five days a week. I can empathize. Now, I'm at the other end of my career, and I've thought to myself, I don't ever want to be in an office again. And I, you know, Thankfully, I have the flexibility to do things like we're doing right now, which is working out of my home office and having a conversation and doing media from home. Look, the young kids do need to be in the office a certain amount of time for mentorship and to learn you know, the rules of the road. But I, I understand I have a 24-year-old daughter who spent two years working from home right out of college. You know, immediately out of college, she got a job, got furloughed, got rehired, but then was remote the entire time. And now she's back in the office and she likes it. She's fine. But I think they just have to reacclimate. I don't think that they will stay out permanently. Having said that, I do think that we're looking at a hybrid workforce. And I also think we're going to see a lot of automation and technology come in to replace those workers that we don't have. It's not really a replacement. It's to fill the void that we have. And that's quick service restaurants using robots and automation and companies using productivity enhancing software to make up for what they simply can't get in the labor market right now. I guess my question would be getting back to inflation. What breaks the cycle? You talked about we're not at the end of a business cycle, but when do chips come back online? When do cars come back online? Are we talking months? Are we talking years? And are the things that the president and the treasury secretary are talking about, are they band-aids on a bullet wound or could they have practical effects? 
they could in the long run. And to misquote, you know, or, or at least paraphrase John Maynard Keynes, in the long run, we're all dead, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> right. But I think they made some very practical points, but they don't have the power to restore in the short run the supply of computer chips. Now, China does, and they're starting to reopen after being shut down in the fifth wave of the pandemic and running this zero COVID policy that shut down Shanghai, Shenzhen, a thousand boats off the coast, not leaving China for other shores. If China comes back online and, and God willing, the war in Ukraine comes to a sudden halt. Now, granted, Russia won't be exporting as much oil, but the Ukraine will be exporting more grain and more foodstuffs and more natural gas. So those things really have to come into play for inflation to ebb in a meaningful way. Otherwise, the Fed's going to keep raising rates and knock us into a recession in order to get demand down to meet, again, this constrained supply. In my mind, it's the wrong way to solve the problem, but it would take a while, months, maybe not years, to make some serious headway in solving the supply shortages relative to trying to kill demand to keep inflation from going higher than it already has. So it sounds like what you're saying is they might nearly kill the patient to save it. Yeah, there's, there's the Vietnam analogy, right? I mean, it's, you know, they're going to burn the village to save it. And there is some concern about this and it's being talked about. And look, I have an enormous bone to pick with the academics that keep suggesting we overstimulated the economy. If you go back to when President Biden, for instance, passed along with Congress the $1.9 trillion additional stimulus bill and the Fed was holding rates at zero, we were not out of the woods on COVID. Ukraine had yet to be invaded. We weren't even getting vaccines yet. We weren't even getting vaccines, yeah. So we didn't know where any of this was going. And it was palliative care for a patient that was effectively on life support. And so now, you know, in retrospect, to look back and say, oh, they did too much. Well, no, they were really trying to keep everybody afloat as the economy was cratering. And, you know, obviously it was starting to come back up by then. But I think they did the right thing. And again, I think most people have it backwards that this is a demand problem. If you go back to February of 2020, the unemployment rate was at 3.5%. Inflation was below 2%. So in my mind, it's almost all supply. We need stuff. We need people. So this is going to be a long-term question about cars, <laughs> right? Okay. Like, my car is seven years old. It's five years younger than the average. But I'm going to drive it for another five years. Okay, yeah. My point is, is that especially with cars made after pick a year in the last 20, a car with minimal care and maintenance will run forever. Has the United States economy been propped up by the idea that everybody needs a new car every three years since like 1950? Yeah, to a certain extent. In, we used to talk about planned obsolescence when I was growing up, how certain things like your washing machines would die after three years, so you'd have to go get another one. Or your iPhone. Or your, or your iPhone clicks off at a specific date right near your expiration. Yeah, look, yes and no. I mean, look, first of all, I think people want a new car every three years. You know, we're a very impatient society, and so we like turnover, we like change, we like shiny new objects. And so, yeah, to an extent, that's true. The average age of a car, by the way, in the United States right now is 12.2 years because, one, you can't get one. And again, it's a two to eight month wait, depending. I on know my dealer's like, hey, I'll give you a great deal on that. I'll give <laughs> yeah, you a exactly. great deal on that. I'm like, yeah. I get it. But like, my guy's telling me to buy my lease when it's up because I'll pay less on the car monthly than I'm paying for the lease if I purchase it outright. But, you know, the last time I got my car serviced, Ron, and I know this is not an auto show, so we'll get off the, <laughs> we'll get off the car talk here in a second. Um, car talk. Yeah, exactly. Car talk. Great show in its day. He said, do you want to sell your car? I said, I don't. And he said, are you sure the new ones are great? I said, does it do anything different than the, the car I have now? He said, well, the bells and whistles are so much better. 
And he goes, and really, that's what people want now. They want all the tech gizmos. They want the nicer interior. They want the glassy front. And I'm like, I don't care about any of that. It's got a speedometer. It's got an odometer. It's all I need. Yeah, for a lot of people. But look, we are a car society. I mean, look, I, I spent part of my life in Los Angeles. And, you know, you are your car. So there's a huge portion of the population that identifies with the vehicle that they drive. And so, yes, we upgrade every chance that we get. You know, it's harder to do with other items. And it's, you know, certainly less obvious if you're upgrading your washer and dryer. But you're seen in your car, right? And look, the bells and whistles in some instances are truly miraculous. There's something that economists call hedonic adjustment. And it means adjusting uh, cost with quality. So if you go back to, let's say, the car I drove around in as a kid, a 1963 Chevy Impala that my dad drove, right, which had, you know, roll down windows. You could only open the door if you put your thumb on that little metal thing. And, you know, it was a V8 and it got nine miles to the gallon. Right? That's exactly right. So you look <laughs> at a car today and the relative price and the quality of that car compared to what we experienced as kids. They're not more expensive. They're actually a steal, relatively speaking. And so, yeah, we like to turn those cars over every couple of years, get something new. And now with the EV revolution, everybody's going to be looking at not just Teslas, but also the Ford 150 or the new electric Mustang or whatever else is coming off the line that, you know, hopefully will be greener and cleaner, but also give you some of the same excitement that you got from cars your whole life. So let's zoom out from the individual who's trying to figure out how to pay their rent how to feed their family, put gas in their car. As we're recording this, Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan, said that the United States is in for an economic hurricane. And he went through a number of things. But then in true Wall Street fashion, Ron, it feels like he said, or maybe we're not. So, like, is there a hurricane off the coast or is it a thunderstorm and we just don't know any better? I don't think we know yet. I doubt that it's a hurricane off the coast. Jamie's also changed his mind over the course of just the last couple of months where he was fairly optimistic. Consumer had excess savings, which may not be the case any longer. Retail sales were strong. Auto sales were weak, but demand was high. Demand for housing is high. People were spending money and switching from goods to services, getting ready to travel like crazy, which is what we're seeing you know, as summer kicks off. And yet airlines are cutting flights, which makes no sense to me. Well, because they don't have the capacity. There's a pilot shortage as well. So they can't operate efficiently and safely without the requisite number of trained individuals to take the planes off the ground. Point which, taken. Point taken, right? <laughs> so look, I think if the Federal Reserve is so doggedly insistent on beating inflation out of the system like Paul Volcker did in the early 1980s, where he raised rates to 20% at the short end. You know, the prime rate went to 20.5%. My first car loan in 1981 was 20.5% for a $2,000 four door tan 1979 Chevy Nova. And I can't tell you Boy, how I popular. Boy, I bet you wish you had that one right now. <laughs> I was in college. That was not exactly the type of thing that got you a lot of dates, but right. it was 2,000 bucks. But still, it was 20.5%. If the Fed today wants to raise rates to three, four, five percent, you're going to see a real recession. They're going to kill the consumer. They're going to sop up those excess savings, which have already begun to dissipate, and drive the economy into a recession. Now, again, that's if they go that far. If they stop and they reassess and decide that inflation's rolling over and they don't have to do as much, then I think it's either a tropical storm or you know something that's less violent, less destructive, and we just have to kind of get through and wait for it to pass. For someone like me, Ron, who, as I mentioned, doesn't understand a lot of the mechanics of this or the Fed being, you know, the man behind the curtain, do they have a track record of being able to figure out what levers to pull and when where there has been 
a, I'm going to use the word relatively soft landing for the American people because it's easy to sit in the pretty Fed building and do all this stuff because you're probably pretty well off. You're probably done fine. You're probably a little bit older. But, you know, to your point, these other things, whether or not it's a car loan, a home loan, can easily price people out in what, 500 basis points, a percent, whatever it is. Yeah, listen, I mean, we saw mortgage rates since the Fed started talking about raising rates and then actually doing it. You saw a conventional 30-year fixed mortgage go from 3% to 5.5 in the space of under a year. That coupled with, over the last two years, a 40% rise in the price, the median price of an American house meant that your monthly payment went ballistic. It just went straight up. And so, yes, it gets really expensive really fast in this environment. People love to just ding the Fed. It's a really hard job. There are so many variables, the extension of the pandemic. And, you know, Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary yesterday, admitted that she was wrong about inflation. It was really easy to be wrong about inflation because we assumed the pandemic would go away. We'd reach endemic status. We didn't see China getting shut down. We didn't see the war in Ukraine. And so you could make a lot of mistakes under those circumstances where these unforeseen events really take over and knock the economy for a loop. And now the Fed, you know, I don't think they're so out of touch. They do talk to business leaders. They do go out in the field. But I think they're trying to thread a needle. I'll give you the stats. In the last 11 times that the Fed has tried to engineer a soft landing, they've only managed it three. And listen, this is not to diminish any pain that individuals and families go through during periods like this. I mean, the economy right now is relatively strong, right? We're at full employment. Prices are high, and it's difficult in the middle and lower income groups to afford your daily expenses. And I'm sympathetic and empathetic to that. I grew up that way. Having said that, these things do pass. Now, whether or not we get any enlightened policy decisions out of Washington, given how hyperpolarized things are, is an open question. How do you mitigate some of the pain that people are feeling and still kind of responsibly conduct policy? It's a critical question right now. And you know where we are in the cycle. Nothing's going to happen between now and November. And if indeed the Republicans take either house, nothing's going to happen for the next two years. Let me ask you this, and you brought China up a couple of times, so I want to bring those things together, is that the United States since the end of World War II has been the world's reserve currency. Yes. Everybody would rather denominate in the dollar than anything else. How long does that last? For a long, long time. Because at the end of the day, there's still no place you'd rather suck your money. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the dollar is used in so many foreign exchange transactions. It's about 60% of all trade is conducted in dollars. And I know there are the crypto enthusiasts out there who, in my mind, are absolutely, and I'm going to probably get fired for saying this, batshit crazy <laughs> that, that, that someday Bitcoin is going to supplant the dollar as the reserve currency of the world. Let me tell you, Ron, the only people who will troll you harder than Bernie bros are crypto <laughs> I know, bros. I know. I swear and like, to God. I know a lot of them. I know some of them. And I've stupidly, 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 I first heard about Bitcoin at $100. If I put 10 grand in, I would have been done six months ago. I'd be out. I'd be on an island, you know, sending checks to my wife and children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate how you, how you said that. <laughs> you know, but it, no, I love them all. But I don't understand the use case. I don't see the functionality. I see that it's a speculative asset that's gone parabolic in price. To me, it just looks like another speculative bubble. Having said that, my 20-year-old son trades NFTs, and he's made some significant amounts of money. He and his best friend flipped an invisible friend. They invested $1,200, got 30000 out, 
Now, I had an invisible friend when I was a kid, but I made no money off it whatsoever. And people told you to stop talking to the wall. Exactly, yeah. But let me ask you that, because to your point about all of this stuff, when you mention things like crypto, when you mention things like NFTs, which I will not pretend to understand, and the some of the outrageous amount of money that is being spent on these things, it sure seems like there's a hell of a lot of rich people spending a hell of a lot of money on stupid shit. So I wrote a book about bubbles back in 2003, and there was a better book actually written by uh, Edward Chancellor called Devil Take the Hindmost, which went all the way back to first century AD, where there was speculation in Roman publicly traded companies. And you can find, by the way, in ancient Sumeria, even farther back, mortgages, futures contracts that are written in cuneiform that show a great deal of financial sophistication. So as long as there's been a civilization, there has been some human desire to speculate everything from grain futures all the way out to cryptocurrencies, right? So these episodic events occur with great regularity. A lot of them occur when there's a lot of easy money around, as we've seen in the last couple of years, and everybody's got a great new idea. Now, the internet was transformational technology, as we know right now, sitting here looking at each other on Zoom while we, while we record this, and we understood that, but there were thousands of companies that went public, very few of which remained. Blockchain technology is transformational insofar as it's going to lower the cost of engaging in financial transactions. You can create smart contracts. Ethereum is probably the currency that will be used as the intermediary currency to engage in all this stuff. There are 12,000 cryptocurrencies that are absolute nonsense that are all going to go away. And some people have made a lot of money like they did in the internet days, even though their companies disappeared. And some people have made a lot of money, even though these currencies that they dabble in are going to disappear. So one thing you mentioned, and I'd seen this, was China said Shanghai is slowly grinding to an open. And these people had been locked down for, what, a couple of months? Yeah, it looked like the running of the bulls in Pamplona. I mean, they locked their people into their apartments. They're basically nailing the doors shut. 25 million yes. people. And Ron, like, that seems like a recipe for bad things if you're President Xi. Because you can be a country of 200 million people, 1.6 billion people. Let me tell you something. There's more of them than there are of you, even if you got a lot of guys with guns. Yes. And you can only tolerate so much dissent before things happen politically, right? And we know that in every country. Look, it may very well happen to Vladimir Putin as well, for all we know. But yeah, look, G coming up in October is presumably going to be named president for a third term, maybe for life. But we're hearing stirrings that that may not be the case, that there are others who are interested in taking control of the economy. This has really been a horrid experiment gone wrong that has had enormous domestic and global economic consequences. And this command and control kind of Orwellian surveillance state that's being created in China is not one that is going to be terribly productive in the future, in my opinion. It's not a popularly held opinion. Everybody thinks they figured out the economic model, just like we thought Japan had it wired in 1989. And that model blew completely apart. I expect the same in China. That's one question I have. I mean, I, I read a lot of history. And to dumb it down for someone like me, Ron, time is always in motion. But why is it that we always get stuck? And maybe it's just human nature that like what is now will be forever. Maybe it's because we have a relatively short lifespan in the context of a four billion year old planet. But it always comes as a shock to people. Oh, well, yeah, the Chinese did this for 40 years. And then the whole thing collapsed on itself because, you know, it's underpinnings, whether or not it's raw materials, whether or not it's people not willing to work for slave labor or be locked in their apartments. Like to your point about the Fed dealing with variables, there are infinite variables and somehow we're always surprised. 
Yeah, there's very little institutional memory. It's harder today, I think, even than it was when I was growing up. My folks were Depression-era World War II folks. So that left an indelible imprint on them that they shared with us. We knew very much where they came from and what they went through. And it's hard if you grew up in the 70s and 80s and you weren't going to get drafted in Vietnam, as I was not too young, and I was too old for anything, although I almost got killed on 9-11, you know, I, I was also not going to Afghanistan or Iraq, right? I was 40 years old. So what do I tell my kids about my life? Well, it was relatively uneventful. <laughs> you know, we suffered through some inflation when I was a little kid. We went to Canada when I lived in Buffalo to buy food because it was cheaper. And that's my story. So yeah, that institutional memory is missing. The cataclysmic events that my parents grew up with were really not present in my life. And, and our kids think they may never occur again. And yet, you know, we do see history repeating itself. China is trying to be dominant. Russia is trying to be whatever it was at some juncture in the past. And a lot of people simply either, unlike you, don't read about history or, like Henry Ford, think it's bunk and decide that it's not applicable to the current times. When in fact, as soon as we're able to forget the mistakes of the past, we make them again. And that's one thing in my world, the financial world, that is true every five or 10 years. Well, I want to talk about the cataclysmic events because, I mean, we haven't seen a Great Depression, right? There where there was truly 25% unemployment. And let's be clear, too, the United States in 1929, you know, was still largely agrarian. There wasn't national infrastructure, right? You got past maybe what St. Louis and it was dirt roads from there to California. But, you know, I mean, for the generation of your kids, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, the great economic meltdown, Iraq and Afghanistan continuing, the pandemic, Russia, all these things like that's a hell of a busy 20 years for black swan events. It is. And again, you know, you and I both have a situation where our kids probably were largely shielded from these events. My oldest daughter was three on 9-11. My wife was eight weeks pregnant with my son when 9-11 occurred. And my, my youngest came a year later. So even my oldest daughter, when I went through what I did on 9-11, doesn't have a recollection of it. And while I was going through it, we just said, oh, a big building fell down and dad had to stay in the city. You know, that's all we told her. So there's no consciousness of that. And again, without, and I'm not in favor of a draft necessarily, but without that exposure or that risk that the younger generation has to military conflict, we went through 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq and no one even, you know, nobody blinked, right? It wasn't Vietnam. No matter what you saw on TV, when I was growing up, every night at 6.30, Cronkite or whomever was showing pictures of kids in body bags coming home from Vietnam. And that was not how Afghanistan and Iraq played out to this younger generation. So I don't think they felt any of this. But let me ask you this, because, and I know this is a little bit off economics, but you've clearly been an observer and an active participant in so much of American life in the last 40 years. 58,000 Americans died in Vietnam over 10 years, and it took us 30 years to get over it. We've lost a million people in two years, and it's like, that's too bad. Yeah, nobody even blinked. How is that possible? It blows my mind. I don't know. Or is it that it's a delayed shock? It's PTSD. We haven't, no, we haven't I don't come think to grips so. with it. Really? I don't think so at all. I, you know, 75% of the people who passed were over the age of 65, and you know, nursing homes were hit disproportionately hard. People of color were hit disproportionately hard, sadly, as, as we all know. I think we absorbed this thing almost walking through life with blinders on and almost a certain sense of selfishness, not selflessness, that as long as it doesn't happen to me, I'm cool. The other thing is I am shocked that it hasn't had a more profound impact on the national psyche. 
losing a million people. Now, it's had a profound impact on worker psychology. The three questions people ask now, is, what do I want to do with my life? How much do I want to do it for? And where do I want to do it? And we've seen that play out in the real economy. But it's not the level of fear, let's say, that my older brother, who turned 18 in 1973, had about getting drafted to go to Vietnam. There wasn't that palpable sense of you're going to lose your kid in Vietnam versus your grandmother's going to die of COVID. I mean, I hate to put it in such graphic terms, but it seemed to me, as you indicated, really different feelings. I mean, we literally whistled past graveyards during this experience. And I don't know that we've, as a nation, learned anything from it from a policy perspective, or even it certainly hasn't brought us any closer to one another. And that's where I think leadership matters, right? Which is, if you wanted to be a uniter in that moment two years ago, roughly, would it be less than a million people? I assume so. Would it maybe be a million people? It might be. Would we be a less fractured country? I think almost assuredly. And look, I think there's more than one person to blame in that regard. I mean, there is one very prominent reporter who knew very early on that this was transmissible, highly transmissible, that it was 10 times more lethal than the flu and saved it for a book. I mean, how do you not leak that to your own newspaper? And, you know, I'll just say on that as an aside before I bring politics and, and your world together is if you listen to that recording, it was one of the most lucid conversations I ever heard Trump have. Absolutely. Which was to me made it all the more chilling, which is even that guy figured it out. Yeah. And he knew it and wouldn't admit to it for just purely selfish political reasoning not to tell people how dangerous this illness was. And we lose a million people because of it. I worked for Senator John McCain many years ago. And I remember once in 2007, during the early stages of the first John McCain 2.0, 1.0, you know, he and Ted Kennedy and then President George W. Bush were close to getting an immigration deal. And, you know, there were some folks on the campaign like, you do this, it's over. And he's like, OK. And he said, if I've you know, whenever I've ever made a decision based on naked political ambition, it's always blown up in my face. And I think that that's probably true, you know, even more so now. And we're still paying the price, by the way, for that not having happened. For sure. And this is one of those things, too, Ron, which is, I think, you know, why I'm glad to have folks like you on who are very in tune with American politics and American political life, but not a prisoner to it, maybe like I am. <laughs> I was for a little while. <laughs> is that, yeah, but you understand how it's all interconnected. And so yeah. let's talk about that. So, I mean, look, I've done corporate PR and public affairs for many, many years, and I know why most companies do things they do when they get in trouble, which is first, ignore it, it'll go away. It's not going away. Hire the $500,000 a month crisis PR firm. It's still not going away. And then just wait because eventually, you know, things will turn. But now we're in a position where, to your point about the split and the factionalization of Americans, you know, and we saw like in Georgia last year, they passed legislation that basically made it more difficult for folks to vote, opened up some avenues by which votes could be changed. All of those things. No one really spoke up in the midst of those negotiations and tried to derail them. But in the aftermath, companies like Delta Airlines and Coca-Cola based in Atlanta, based in Georgia, spoke up very loudly. The reaction from a lot of Republicans, I'd say specifically people like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, was to write op-eds basically saying, Cruz said to Coca-Cola, hey, we remember you owe us all this money in taxes. Like, we're not going to forget that. Rubio said things like, we're going to ensure that American companies promote American values. Like, Ron, these are not capitalist, free market economy thoughts. Corporate America is in a very, I think they're in a really tough spot in a certain sense right now. 
in the macro world where you take Disney, for instance, right? So the don't say gay bill or however you want to characterize it passes in Florida and they don't do anything. But then the community that they work with has a massive response to the fact that they didn't fight the bill. So now they're dealing with multiple constituencies, the state in which they operate, the people who work for them, and the people who visit their theme parks, who are probably split on that very issue, but the people who work for them aren't, and the state that they operate in isn't either. So threading that needle is becoming increasingly difficult. I think issues like maybe gun control will become a little bit easier in the wake of these tragedies that have taken place. But when it comes to these social issues, corporations are trying to lead. There is a lot of pressure from institutional investors for corporations to have a greater backbone, if you will, when it comes to social and moral issues, and ESG as well. So it's you know environmental, social, and governance issues that they're facing pressures from institutions, pensions, other investors to kind of get with the program and move the ball forward in that regard. It is going to be uneven as it always is. And some will lead, some won't do anything, some will follow, and then some you know, will fall into the trap, as you say, where something's going to go horribly wrong they'll deny it, they'll try to wait it out, and then they're going to get hammered by events that overtake them. The thing I, I don't understand, again, Ron, going back to my status as a at best amateur historian, is that, you know, you mentioned China. We've seen this happen in Russia, and I want to get to that in a second, is that command economies or authoritarian states rarely benefit economically, or the, I should say individual citizens and companies rarely benefit economically. In fact, it's more like the button man is going store to store, you know, picking up protection money, right? It becomes a racket. Yeah, absolutely. So Russia right now is, you know, and to a certain extent, maybe even, you know, places like Saudi Arabia, they're very much command and control economies. China, under Deng Xiaoping, starting in 1979, was really trying to reinvent itself, become more open. There were key figures in China through the period in which it tried to modernize and, and open to the West. Zhu Rongji, who ran the Central Bank of China for a period of time, Listen, they all went through Tiananmen Square, and it was you know, a horrible period. At the same time, though, they were in the process of trying to open, trying to, to a certain degree, play ball with the West on various agreed-upon rules of the road. President Xi has changed all that. Putin has changed all that, right? I mean, we dealt with you know, Gorbachev in a very interesting way. Yeltsin was the wrong guy at the wrong time and allowed for Putin to come up. And now we're sitting here in what to me looks like, and again, putting on an amateur historian hat, more like a 1930s vibe than almost anything else, where you have multiple countries, I should say, and companies within them trying to decide how to navigate this field of countries that they want to access, but now are acting so badly, they simply can't. McDonald's leaving Russia. You know, I think you might see this with China and American companies somewhere down the road as well that it's just going to become untenable. Well, let me just tell a quick story. So 20 years ago, almost to the day, I was in a town in central Russia called Nizhny Novgorod. And I had to take an overnight train from Moscow to get there, which was one of the, being in a train car by yourself, when you look out the window and you might, there's literally, Ron, no lights, right? Like no lights between when you pull out of the Moscow station when you wake up the next morning. And I'm sitting in the Nizhny Kremlin. It's about 9,000 degrees. Everybody's smoking. And I've got this poor guy, he's this interpreter sitting next to me. And he's like a commerce department contractor. And I'm working, I, I worked for Paul O'Neill at the Treasury Department at the time. I was in I like Paul a lot, by the way. Uh, he was a terrific guy. And O'Neill wants to have these meetings with the Russian heads of American businesses who are in this town. 
and they're screaming at me in every guttural tone in Russian, you know, and pointing their smokes at me and, and everything else. And I'm saying, no, tell them no. And I, you know, I know I get to go home right on a blue and white airplane. This guy has got to stay here. And finally, after 25 minutes of haranguing, there's this guy over on the side, Ron, and he's just been sitting and watching and smoking. And he says in perfect English, Reed, you don't understand. This is our country. This is our town. These are our businesses. And I was like, well, you could have just said that at the beginning. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly didn't, right. Didn't need yeah. to go through all this trouble, right? And ultimately, you know, they had their guy in the meetings because like they just weren't going to happen. Fast forward a couple of weeks, we get home and you know, whatever the Nizhny Novgorod rag was, wrote all these just scathing stories about Paul O'Neill and, you know, capitalist, you know, whatever, spending a little too much time looking at the Russian interpreter like you couldn't make it up. Right. It was just crazy. I find that fascinating because, look, I think we're devolving into this period of deglobalization. By the way, again, from a historical perspective, I was just reading about the collapse of certain civilizations in 1177 BC, where international trade was a very big deal. And we've seen this throughout history where trade flows around the globe ebb and flow with changes in technology, right? So you have periods of wild expansion and then deep contraction in relations among countries and systems clash. And we're clashing again. And look, we're raised capitalists, right? We don't, again, we wouldn't recognize another system to operate in if it hit us in the face. But we know, I think from experience, that command and control simply doesn't work and does not lead to a broad-based general prosperity. And even though China has pulled many, many people out of poverty, they don't have the freedom that's normally associated with that. And certainly in Russia, Russia's not even an economy. They're the size of New York State. And if they didn't have oil and a handful of other commodities- And nuclear weapons. And nuclear weapons, we wouldn't even talk to them. It feels like a lot of times now, Ron, we've reached a sort of peak Ayn Rand amongst corporate leaders, amongst tech billionaires like Teal and Elon Musk and Zuckerberg, right? You know, regulation for thee, but not for me. Taxation for thee, but not for me. Because that's the one thing I remember Rick Wilson and I, and one of my partners were driving around and I said, you know, Rick, we could do all this work. We could feel like, okay, we saved democracy, but the whole bottom could fall out because of economic inequality in this country. So as we close here, how do you see that? Is there a way to solve it easily? And how much does it worry you? It worries me enough. I mean, and I think what's also fascinating about the post-pandemic period is that some power is swinging back to labor. And again, that also ebbs and flows. If you look at other post-war environments where you saw worker strikes after the First World War and, and because of the way World War II played out, where we had the lone workforce left intact in the world, right? I mean, we, we were almost 50% of global GDP in the wake of World War II, and we provided the materials for other countries to rebuild in the aftermath of the war. Labor has reobtained some bargaining power. You see this at Amazon. You see this at places like Starbucks. Some of that is returning. I don't know if it's enough to tilt the balance because we, we have seen also at the same time an enormous aggregation of wealth at the very top of our society. And so the part that worries me most is that those people, unlike, and then people could criticize the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Mellons, and all the rest, they did use a lot of their money ultimately for philanthropic purposes that really were quite important institutionally. And we don't quite see that yet. And again, you also need these very clear rules of the road for some of these, like, as you say, uber capitalists or Ayn Rand libertarians to live by. Corporate profits as a percentage of federal revenues are at the lowest in US history. And so when people say, you know, we can't raise corporate taxes, you'll kill the economy. That's just nonsense. Corporate tax rates have been infinitely higher than they are now. 
and the economy did just fine in the 50s and 60s. And those rates were considerably higher. So I think if I were to design the program, I would raise taxes on corporations to a reasonable level, a 20, 25%, some sort of minimum taxation to ensure that they pay a certain amount. I would ease the burden further on lower and middle income individuals. The lapsing of the child tax credit, I think, was catastrophic. That's something that really raised 25 to 30% of kids out of poverty. And so in this environment, getting consensus on issues like education and nutrition are very difficult when in states like Texas and other places, they're cutting mental health budgets, SNAP budgets, you know, the, the kind of welfare supports or child supports that help both with education and nutrition. Like we just don't have a consensus on that stuff. So part of me is optimistic that as Warren Buffett said, anyone who sells the US economy short is making a bad bet. And then part of me is pessimistic that we just don't have the unanimity of opinion that we've had in prior periods where we recognize a set of problems and tackle them. I'm concerned that we're not fixing the things that can easily be fixed. I'll give you one quick example. There's a pothole around the corner from my house. And I live in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. I live three doors down from CNBC, very convenient location. My wife grew up in the neighborhood. There's a pothole around the corner that now has been partially filled. It's been there for somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four years. So half of it is a speed bump and half of it's a hole. And I don't know whose idea it was and who decided that my choice is either to go over the speed bump or drop my tire into the hole. And that's an okay solution to the infrastructure problems that we have. The money's even there now. <laughs> there might not be a better metaphor for America than that. <laughs> yeah, I don't it's, know. It's a speed bump and a pothole at the same time. There's this kind of crazy thing going on that I, I fully don't understand. And I don't even know what the genesis of it is. I mean, I, I have some ideas around it, but at the root, there has been some very, very fringe stuff that's made its way into the mainstream that's really dominated popular thinking and has done a great deal of damage to, as you say, you know, the common conversation. And there's a level of delusion, I think, that exists in a lot of the arguments that we're having today that just does not comport with reality. And that's the whole point, Ron, is that it's all predicated on fear. That's the whole ballgame. It's all predicated on fear. Well, Ron... I don't know that I have had as wide-ranging or fascinating <laughs> or entertaining conversation as I have with you. But before we let you go, where can everybody find you on social media and where can we find you on our on the boob tube? <laughs> so CNBC pretty much every Friday, somewhere between two and three o'clock on Power Lunch, RN Sana on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. And then MSNBC, obviously I pop up there from time to time. It's all part of a one big happy family. Oh, well, great. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Ron and Sana, thank you. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, Follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.